0: this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, starting at verse 1. And to give honor to our Lord and to His holy and infallible word, let's stand as we give heed to this, the infallible word of the Lord. I'm sorry, Luke 12, Luke 12, starting at verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell yes i tell you fear him are not five sparrows sold for two cents yet not one of them is forgotten before god indeed the very hairs of your head are all numbered do not fear you are of more value than many sparrows let's pray together O oh, father we ask that you would Help us to receive this your word, that we would fear you, that we would trust you, that we would love you, and that you would be supreme in our hearts and minds. Help us to work faith in us by this your holy word, for we ask it in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I truly believe that secular psychology does not really give us the best answer or the best answers for dealing with fear. i want to read you a little section from psychology today and then I'll give a critique of it. Fear is a vital response to physical and emotional danger which has been pivotal throughout human evolution. Of course I don't believe in evolution. But especially in ancient times when men and women regularly faced life-or-death situations. That's why fear is there, they say. Today the stakes are lower, but while public speaking, elevators and spiders don't present the same type of immediate uh, dire consequences that early man faced, some individuals still develop extreme fight, flight, or freeze responses to specific objects or scenarios. So why is fear there in the first place? Did God create us in paradise to have fear? When Adam and Eve were created, they had no fear. They had no fear of death. They had no fear of disease, because none of those things even existed until the fall. After the fall of mankind, sin brought sin came into the world. Mankind's failure, Adam and Eve's failure to keep God's Uh, Covenant of works caused them and their posterity, all their descendants, by ordinary generation, to fall into a state of sin and misery. That's why we have fear. That's why we have anxiety. That's why we have illness, mental illness, sickness. All that's because of the fall of mankind. Um, Before we get into what Jesus gives us as some of the resolutions on how to deal with fear... Um, he, we want to go back and look at some of the previous context. At this point in, in the ministry of Jesus, his fame has already been spread abroad. Uh, he was famous because of his casting out many demons. He was famous because of the many of the signs and wonders, even giving forth resurrection by his mighty hand and by uh, his miraculous works, but also by his teaching with authority, word had spread about Jesus and people were beginning to want to hear him. And that's why we have this mention of this rather large crowd of thousands of people, um, and his growing popularity here is evident in verse 1, it says, under these circumstances around this time, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. We know from other gospel accounts that there were at least 5,000 people present because he fed 5,000, but here it says many thousand. To me many thousand seems more than five, but we don't know the exact number. Um, I did look at the original language and the word used here is myriad, so that can mean many thousands, but we don't know exactly the number. Um, Now in the news you might have wondered, you know, you've heard about people getting crushed in, in a crowd press uh, in Houston two years ago there was a rap concert and they had these metal barricades and all the crowds were trying to get into the, to see the, get right in front of the front stage That so many people kept pushing into this one area and no one could get out and eight people died, oh no, The first it was eight and then two more died in the hospital I believe, ten people died at a rap concert in Houston two years ago and I think in, in Seoul, Korea during Halloween over a hundred and fifty people died in a crowd press i don't think that that's what's going on here that it was life-threatening yeah people were stepping on one another and it was uncomfortable maybe some people did get injured but i don't think people were dying because of a crowd press but that's the kind of gathering that was here it was that massive of of the number of people but i'm sure there was there were no gates causing people not to escape so they they couldn't get pressed and crushed. Um, Jesus, I believe, would have not began teaching if there were people dying in the midst of a crowd press. But as we look at this huge gathering, this is the beginning of a long sermon, which extends all the way from chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, and going all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. One long sermon. Now, I'm not going to, as you know, I'm not going to do sermon. one uh, sermon to cover all of this. We're going to have to break it up because there's a lot of meat that we want to extract here from God's Word and then we, we'll break it up. But the, the text for today is that we're looking at the main focus that you are to fear and trust God and not men. You are to fear and trust God and not men. We'll see this in three main points. Beware of hypocrisy. Fear God and not men. And second, uh, thirdly, trust your sovereign God. So let's look at this first main point, beware of hypocrisy. Look at the middle of verse one. In this crowd press here, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Another word for leaven here could be yeast. Yeast is what we put in bread and if you, have the right, if you have the right conditions of moisture and temperature and the right type of dough and type of flour, you can use actually a few little granules of yeast and if you give it enough time, it can spread throughout a large amount of dough, enough to make many loaves. Now that might take a long time, most people use a lot of granules, uh, a whole packet of them. but this here is an illustration that God is giving us um, for uh, the way the Pharisees and their hypocrisy was. Now, you might say, well, yeast is a good thing, isn't it? Because don't you like bread that has some rise to it? It's a little bit more fluffy, has a better texture, better than hard tack, which the, the soldiers used to eat on the, in the Western Front when, uh, during the, the times of the... Uh, when they were exploring the wild rest, when the frontier army had hardtack, which is basically baked flour with no rise to it. But we like bread with, with some fluff to it, don't we? But here, it's used in a comparison of the danger of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It doesn't take that much for it to spread, and you don't even know it's there. You don't see it working, but it infiltrates and it spreads throughout the entire lump of dough. And that is a danger because it can breed compromise and even unbelief. You must flee hypocrisy from wherever you observe it. This includes even parents, teachers, and even your closest friends. We must flee it. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, God must be your ultimate authority. God must be your ultimate authority how you are to live. Not only the Pharisees, but all modern religious leaders living in hypocrisy and gross compromise will get exposed on the day of judgment. That's what the text is saying here. Look at verses 2 through 3. But there is nothing covered up that will not be hidden, uh, that will not be revealed and hidden, that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Paul says it another way in Romans 2:16. He says, "On that day, the day of judgment, God will judge the secrets." of men through Christ Jesus. I heard a Roman Catholic priest one time say this. He said that on, in heaven, everyone will know every sin that you've ever committed in this life and you, they will know the shame of all your sins. It doesn't sound like heaven to me, does it? Um, would, do you think that sounds like heaven to you? Or no. Uh, letting scripture interpret scripture I believe that what's talked about here is that the wicked hypocrites will have all things exposed their shame and their hypocrisy will be exposed but what Jesus goes on to say later in verse 8 that's a little preview for another sermon but in verse 8 he says everyone who confesses me before men the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God Now, in Matthew's account, he says not only confess him before the angels of God, but before his Father. You have Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ is your mediator. Jesus Christ is your advocate. He is the one who goes between you and the Father and reconciles you unto the Father. And on that great day of judgment, the accuser, the brethren, might want to say things about you that Yes, you sinned, but Jesus' plea for your behalf will be that I died for his sin or her sin. Well, that person didn't keep the law. Well, the plea of Jesus was, will be, I kept the law for him or her. So Jesus Christ is not only our Lord and Savior, but he's also our mediator, and he's the one who pleads our case. And Christ, by his perfect work, will cover not only our sin, but our shame. And we won't have shame in heaven. Because if if there's shame in heaven, then that's not heaven. Westminster Shorter Catechism 38 says this, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Um, If we're honest with ourselves, yes, we're going to be acquitted. But if we're honest with ourselves and we examine ourselves, none of us are as consistent as we ought to be. Um, Our goal should be to grow, to become more and more consistent, to be conformed to the image of Christ. But that's a goal of sanctification, which will be a lifelong endeavor. It will never be finished until we go and to be with the Lord. Next, let's look at this teaching he gives on the fear of God and not of men. Verses uh, 4 through 5. I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Most of us, it doesn't take the threat of death for us to, to compromise and be unwilling to speak the name of Jesus because of embarrassment. But it's similar, isn't it? The first commandment of God is you shall love the Lord your God and have no other gods before him. Have no other gods before me. Now, when we want to exalt ourselves and we want people to think well of us or we are trying to impress someone else, we either make ourselves or that other person an idol, more important than God himself. If your goal is to please someone other than God, ultimately, then that can be an idol that you are making. You're making them more important than the God of heaven. Now, to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, even Christians, lifelong Christians, still struggle with this particular sin. I didn't grow up in a a reformed Bible teaching church. I I grew up in a a Catholic family where we barely went to mass, only for some period of time, and then we stopped after bad things happened to our family. But when I went to seminary, I had problems with anxiety. I had terrible problems in college, but when I went to seminary, I still had a little nervousness with preaching. And one time I was preaching a message, and, and one of the students, this was in a, it was a preaching class. One of the students named Travis Grassman, who's now a pastor in Michigan, he looked at me and he said, he, he whispered while I was preaching, he said, it's not about you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm anxious, right? Yeah. It's not about you. It's right. It's not about us. Life is not about us. It's about pleasing God first and foremost. You know? That was a little rebuking, a little shameful, but it was it's something you need to hear sometimes, right? But each of us need to hear that. It's not about us, it's about pleasing God first and foremost. He is first. You shall have no other gods before him. Jesus said, The worst that someone else can do to you is to kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Verse 4. Now, this is an important lesson because a lot of the people he was speaking to, a lot of his disciples, were going to die for their Christian faith. Um, Remember, Matthias took the place of uh, Judas, but every one of those apostles, except for John, who uh, wrote the book of Revelation, all of those apostles, according to to extra-biblical accounts, say that they died for the sake of their faith. They were put to death for Christ. I would murder for Jesus. Now, as dreadful as a painful, even torturous death may be, it's only a drop in the bucket compared to the sea of eternity. It's only a little drop of water in comparison to the ocean of eternity. Romans 8, 18 says, For I considered the sufferings of this present time, that would include even death and torture and execution, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus said, "We ought to consider that God uh, can what God can do for us rather than what mankind, mankind can do to us. Um, a person can kill the body, but as Jesus said in verse five, "I warn you that whom you are to fear, fear the one." Who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is a healthy fear you ought to have. Fear God, who's the one who can cast your soul into hell. What can a person do to you? They can embarrass you, they can hurt you, they can torture you, they can kill you. But in comparison to what God can do to you, God can cast you in hell you don't have to fear the one that can cast you into hell, is what he's saying in this particular passage. A proper, healthy fear of God is the cure for a fear of man. The more you fear God, the less you will fear men. Put his kingdom first and the rest of your needs will be taken care of. Fear and trust him first and foremost. Now, at this point, in his preaching to this audience, many of them were probably thinking, I don't know if I have enough faith to suffer death for you, Jesus. Maybe some of us think the same thing. You know, I don't know if I could be willing to suffer persecution and death for you, Jesus. But then he goes on to assure them of his sovereign love, that you are to trust in your sovereign God. That's our third main point. Trust in your sovereign God. Verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. You are of more You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, you could probably buy ducks or... Well, I'm sorry, the Jews wouldn't eat duck. But you could buy chickens or something. Something like that. or so other pheasants or some other bird. You could buy... A pheasant maybe in the in the marketplace, but if you were going to buy sparrows, you weren't going to get a lot of meat on it, but people still like to eat those things. They would skin them and roast them and eat sparrows. Uh, we grew up eating little tiny birds uh, in Grand Prairie, Louisiana. Um, but that was the cheapest bird you could buy in the market. They were, it hardly cost anything whatsoever. But a bird that you might see is almost worth hardly anything at all. God says they were worth something to him. And by his sovereignty, it says he did not forget even one of them. What does that mean? He cared for them. He fed them. He preserved them every day of their little lives until he ordained that that was the end for them. And especially for the son and daughter of God, God says, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Yes, you're to fear God. You're to fear God ultimately, but you're also to trust God. And you're not to fear circumstances because God has promised that as he's caring for the sparrows, the little insignificant tiny little bird, he's caring for you as well. He knows all of your needs and he will take care of each and every one of your needs. As he cares for the sparrow, not one person on this earth is forgotten of God. And I believe that's talking about both the believer and unbeliever alike. Matthew five forty-five says this, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I believe that makes an unbeliever's rejection of God even worse, because he sovereignly cares for them and their needs, yet they reject him as God, and they reject the son that he sent for their salvation. That makes their unbelief worse. The text goes on to say that God is in control of every little minutia, every little detail in your life. He says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered by God, in verse 7. Now, I thought about this. Numbering every hair on someone's head, that would be kind of a hard task. How would you kind of pull them to the side and keep numbering them? Some of us, numbering the hairs might be easier than others because we have less hair than others. But at the same time, God is aware of exactly how many hairs are upon our heads, every last one of them. To take it a little further, uh, I, I, There's an estimate in, in, in Healthline says that scientists have come up, come up with an estimate of how many cells a person has. And the estimate is 30 trillion cells in a human body is the approximate estimate. Now, that's an estimate. But you know, God knows exactly how many cells make up each and every one of your bodies. He knows you to that intricate minor detail. So since your father knows these intricate details of your life, he also knows how many years, how many days, how many hours, and even how many minutes you'll live. He knows it, and you cannot even worry about it. Because if you worry, he says, which one by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? God has ordained it. Now, concern about health? Yes. Yes. Do what you can to keep yourself healthy, yes. But even that God's in in control of. But his ultimate plan for you, he knows your days and, and years of your life. So he says, don't worry about it. This all requires faith and trust in God and his sovereign plan for your life. Now, it's normal when things go terribly wrong and you get the worst news of your life, and maybe even a, maybe a medical diagnosis that you have a terminal illness, it's normal, to, it's expected almost to see people fall apart at the seams. But in my years of working as an occupational therapist in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, South Carolina, Louisiana, some of the greatest heroes of, my, for, of the faith I've met were those godly Christian saints, elderly men and women, who despite whatever terrible news they had, they were trusting God and his sovereignty. And they were a great encouragement to me. I know it's, it's easy for us to fret when bad news happens, but when we show forth a faith that God is truly God, even in the worst of news, that stands out to people. People know this. And we should pray that God would enable us to be witnesses of trust, that we know that every day, minute, hour, and every hair of our head is numbered, and that we have that sort of faith and trust in our God. Brothers and sisters, you are not only to fear God, but you are to trust God. And don't fear men, and ultimately don't trust men, but trust ultimately God Beware of hypocrisy. Avoid it wherever you find it because it's contagious. It can spread like yeast throughout a lump of dough. Fear Him and not men. The fear of God, a healthy fear of God, is the answer to your fears of men and even your fears of other things. Trust that your God has a sovereign plan for your life because He is an almighty knowing good God who is in control of every aspect of your life and ask him to give you greater faith to trust him even through the worst of trials. Let's pray together. We thank you for your wonderful grace given unto us in your holy word. We thank you for the wonderful grace given to us in your beloved son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us, we pray, O Father, to trust you. Help us to fear you and not men. Help us to trust you first and foremost and ultimately not men. Help us, we pray, to be people who conform our lives to the image of your Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, O Father, that you did not even withhold your only Son, but that you gave him up for us all and help us to have a sincere, steadfast faith and trust in him, that he will hold us in the very palm of his hand, and that you, O Father, hold us in the palm of your hand. We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our concluding hymn, we'll turn to 556. I'm going to ask Denise to play this through. God, God, the all-terrible... 556, let's stand and sing.